Hey, we're Filthy Hearts. I'm Ryan. I'm Jeremy. I'm Chris. And I'm Greg. And you're listening to Punks and Pubs Podcast. This next song you're about to hear is off of our record, Beyond Repair, which is out on Hidden Home Records. It's called Friends, Strangers, and the Mystery of the Bar Tab. Check it out. And welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. I hope you're all well and all is good. Uh, I'm now recording this in what will eventually be my new podcast studio, audio studio, in my new flat. The acoustics are a little bit better than last week. Last week is really echoey. It's still kind of a harsh room. There's not that much here, uh, but the audio is better. So that's the uh, that's the best thing. <laughs> So festival season is on its way and if you've already got your Christmas decorations up you are a fucking madman 
and you will stab someone in your lifetime and that's just a fact uh, the reason i'm bringing up christmas is because a few weeks back i recorded our christmas special with a guy from a band that i've loved all my life and uh, most of their records are the soundtrack to my youth so i'm very excited for you guys to all hear that but that's in a few weeks i want to talk about the episode you're about to hear now i went and sat down with goldfinger's charlie paulson and newfound glory and sometimes goldfinger drummer cyrus baluki i got his name right this time uh you will hear it in the audio I fucked up massively, even though we start our uh, chat talking about how to pronounce Cyrus's last name, doing it spectacularly wrong and feeling like a bit of a cunt. Uh, anyway, the chat took place in September in the world famous Brixton Academy, and uh, the room that we were in, the acoustics were not great. So apologies for that in advance. Your ears will adapt. They're amazing things. Uh, apologies. So what did we talk about? Well, you will hear about what it was like to grow up in LA around punk in the 80s and how if you want to learn the drums learn to play the piano first Uh, Charlie talks about staying clean in a world of drinks and drugs and opens up about leaving the band after stomping ground and why he came back Cyrus reveals his love for Goldfinger that like you can't underestimate how much this guy really loved Goldfinger Uh, he used to listen to it growing up so you hear about that and also uh, Cyrus kind of reveals that his passion one day uh, he wants to be a radio DJ I've asked him if he ever wants to present an episode of Punks and Pubs he can have an episode on me there's also chat about acting ex-bandmates and Goldfinger's appearance on the Conan O'Brien chat show as well as some other stuff I'll be back after this chat to explain how you can sponsor the podcast for free, just like the Filthy Hearts did at the top of the show. Well, that's then, and this is now. People, I give to you episode 46 with myself, Charlie, and Cyrus. Enjoy. Do you, you, you just gone proper British and really polite? 
Uh, yeah, most of the time. Yeah, yeah. It's just not worth the fucking hassle. I would no, but it's your name, though, isn't it? So it's like you want to get you want to get people to get it right. Yeah, but look, I didn't I didn't pick it or whatever. You know, it picked me, so it's uh, it's, it's a cool fucking name. I it think. is it's a cool name, but it's not. It's tricky. So you know, Baluki. Yeah, Baluki. Nobody can ever understand me over the phone. They always oh, really? think my name is Troy. What? Charlie, Troy, Charlie, Troy, Charlie, Paulson, Ch- Troy, Folsom. Yeah, fine. Let's go. With that. <laughs> we'll just have that. If you just want to put the mic where it makes you feel comfortable, just so I can get you. Uh, That's check, fine. check, check. Cool. All right, then let's start then. So we are in the uh, Brixton Academy up in the top bit. Whereabouts? I didn't even know. This place is like a fucking maze, isn't it? When you're walking around. We've discovered that every O2 venue in this country is a fucking maze. I think they were all insane asylums at one point and designed <laughs> to keep people in. So the voice you can hear there is uh, Charlie Paulson, and then next to him, you will hear his voice in two seconds. Two. And that is uh, Cyrus Bulaki. But oh, I've done it wrong. Fuck, we just spoke it's, about it. It's and then, fine. No, it's not fine, man. It's not Baluki. fine. Baluki. Baluki. So you are know mainly Cyrus from Newfound Glory, the drummer of Newfound Glory, but he's here today drumming for Goldfinger. That is correct. Uh, coming in, playing in Charlie's Sandbox. I mean, yeah. how is that? Well, I mean, this is amazing. Goldfinger is a band that I, uh, I literally saw a bunch of times before I was even in Newfound Glory, mm. uh, just as a fan. And learned about them when they pretty much, you know, right after they first started and they first got to Florida from California. So you're talking mid-90s and had been a fan ever since. And I got the call a few years ago on a whim, a couple days notice to play a show in South Florida uh, with them with no rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And to date, we pretty much still have yet to rehearse. But this band is, uh, you know, it's a dream for me to be able to share the stage with some of these amazing musicians playing songs that I literally grew up on but still you know to this day they hold their weight and these shows are amazing especially this tour is so fun so what i would like to do really is uh charlie to talk about kind of your path and then uh get uh cyrus yourself to kind of jump in because if i'm honest uh i don't want to talk about newfound glory because i think it'll take too much time and i feel like that's a individual podcast the next time in the uk i'd love to sit down and talk to you about that am i right and you grew up cyrus in um south florida and charlie you grew up in la yes um obviously they're two very contrasting dynamics of where you grew up i mean one's like a concrete jungle south florida in my mind of it's just alligators don't know how true that is (laughs) (laughs) Um, but but you both obviously come together and you you both play in your respected punk rock whatever you want to call it bands so well i'm interested in how you got there so was your houses full of music was it something that was played all the time or was it something you had to go out and find yourself uh no i grew up surrounded by music uh i grew up in a military household okay it was very strict however uh my father definitely it's almost like he had two personalities and one of them loved music and in my house, I mean, I grew up in the 70s, so we always, there was always something on the turntable. Johnny Cash, The Beatles, Jimi Hendrix. So yeah, I grew up, thank God, listening to real music. You know what I mean? Because I have friends that that their first introduction to music would have been like when they were well into junior high or high school, and it would have been something random. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I know, I know people whose first favorite band ever was Mr. Bungle. Now, I don't know how you develop a love affair with music starting there. Not that there's anything wrong with that band, but they're so fucking hyper-specific. Do you mm. know what I mean? But, I mean, like I said, I grew up with everything uh, from the Rolling Stones to Motown 
You know what I mean? So I've heard you say before that Motown's like your number one. One hundred percent. Like you just love yeah. it. Why? So why is it about Motown that you it's perfect. just gets you? It's perfect music. Those musicians were f- some of the finest that ever lived. Those songs are like universally. Uh, I don't care if you are, you know, a fucking in the gutter crass punk. Or if you are fucking Boris Johnson, you can relate with Motown songs. They will speak to you in some way. If you have a fucking soul, if you have a heart. Well, then it won't speak to Boris Johnson. Fair. <laughs> Fair. I misspoke. <laughs> Sorry, what about yourself, Al? How, how did, where, where did you find music? Was it in the house or did you have to go out? Uh, so it was a mixture of both. Uh, I'm a middle child. I have an older brother as well as a younger brother. Um, I think the older brother was a decent influence on me. Um, he would have gotten into music before I did. And it wasn't necessarily a musical household, although my father, my father was a heart surgeon. So he wasn't out there, you know, doing crazy, just like, uh, rocking out to all this music. He also wasn't born in in America, but he had a very, fond appreciation for classical music mm. and always had that on. I think it was a calming thing for him. That's awesome. Yeah, and mm. I think I, I actually developed a very good sense of just uh, music in general, even kind of a theory type thing from listening to classical music. And my parents told me at an early age we had like a, a church organ or something that we bought from a thrift store, and I would always mess around on that. And so I think I kind of got into music more from that side, actually playing or trying to as a guitar player actually well yeah i started as a guitar player as you know in in bands and stuff but before that even on keyboard and i really took an affinity to like learning about music and then as far as like actually getting into and enjoying music i grew up in the 80s and for me i think it was a little more of the 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 mass media because mtv was around yeah so it was what i saw as opposed to just what i heard first Mm. you know we had the radio and stuff but it, you know, as opposed to Charlie, it wasn't music on turntables. If it was, my father, again, classical music, maybe he loved, like, putting on Argentinian some, like, tango stuff and <laughs> yeah, trying to get my mom to so, dance or something. Yeah, yeah I mean, awesome. and, and being a drummer now, I look back, so maybe I got some kind of rhythmic sense from there. But it was a lot of the mass media. So it was, you know, your Michael Jacksons of the 80s and a lot of the pop music. And then having the older brother, when the 90s hit, my older brother got a guitar. And so he immediately went down that like alternative kind of grunge route and the, the Nirvanas and then Smashing Pumpkins and um, even Metallica and stuff. And I just immediately took all of that from my brother probably a couple of years before some of my friends were getting into it yeah. because it was okay since it was my older brother. And I, that's where I really went into this guitar playing like Charlie was talking about. And I, I became a guitar player. It was all about songs that I thought were kind of based on guitar. And I even did get into some 80s and 70s music you know, through the guitar, just trying to learn how to play. It was uh, so much of a, a thirst for knowledge for me. Anything I could kind of absorb musically, um, and a lot of it had to do with performing. And your brother was quite open to sharing with you because well, a lot of brothers did... can be like, fuck you, you don't understand, this isn't mine. No, what I did is just made sure he didn't know about it at first. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. borrowed the guitar whenever he would leave the house, and I would, you know, borrow his uh, tapes or CDs or whatever he had whenever he left the house. And then slowly but surely, I think he understood that I at least was on the same level as him musically, and we could kind of appreciate it. Um, and yeah, for the little while, I wasn't cool no matter what I did in his eyes. But then, you know, you're both getting in high school, and it's okay because his friend's like me, and <clears> I can play guitar are just as good as he can and yeah. we all try to jam and all that kind of stuff do you still play piano like do you still read music and yo totally read yeah. music and uh you know most of the groups that, that i've been newfound glory and all that kind of stuff people do look to me because the theory wise uh, i just have a better or a different understanding of it than them and it definitely helps me as a drummer a lot of people ask me that kind of stuff you know 
know, I'm learning how to play drums. What should I do? And I immediately push them almost away from the drums and mm-hmm. say, go to something like a piano because that kind of understanding of music is more universal than any other instrument. It, it really is very visual and learning that as like a basic well, whole picture. Yeah. It's like you're looking at an entire house as opposed to starting with the wiring or the plumbing, which is essentially what each instrument is. You know what I mean? You have the wiring, the plumbing, the, the roofing, all that shit, whereas the piano is the whole picture. Yeah. Yep. And less confusing in the sense you have a guitar, somebody says play a C, there's like four different spots on the neck. You could play that same note on a piano. It's the one note, and that's it. And so that's where I think the visual thing comes, and it can apply to any other uh, instrument or almost any genre of music, I believe. So Charlie, being, um, I don't know if you like this term, but army brat is something that kids in the oh, UK 100%, have to yeah. So being an army brat, you're obviously jumping around place to place a lot. Yeah. Um, how did you find then the friends that had kind of the same taste in music? Or was it something that you were keeping kind of isolated to yourself and it's just something you play to your own? I was an army brat, but then I was also a child abductee. Okay. <laughs> when I was three or four, my mom caught my father and the neighbor. And so he packed us up in the middle of the night and took off and told my mom if she ever tried to find me, he'd kill her. So that is relevant because we were hiding out a lot. So I didn't have a lot of friends yeah. uh, in the early stages of my life. So I didn't have people to share things with, you know what I mean? And, um, but to what Cyrus was saying about the older brother, that figure in your life is so fucking important. Um, I don't have an older brother. So for me, it was like the kid down the street that could already play guitar. That was a couple years older than me, or it was the, 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 the cool chick at the, at the record store that, Worked at the record store. You know, I'm 13 and she's 16. And so I just think she knows everything. And I go in there and I'm like, is this band cool? When's this record coming out? What do you like? Do you know what I mean? Um, so that was my thing. And I didn't really sort of, sort of bond with other kids about music until much later because my first favorite band was Kiss. By the time the late 70s, early 80s rolled around, when after my father died, I came back to live with my mom, and I was like in normal schools, and I had friends and all that shit. When that happened, Kiss was not cool anymore. They Mm. were fucking over, but I still loved them. So nobody I knew liked Kiss, so that was still my own thing. Um, And it wasn't until that kind of shit rolled around again with Motley Crue and that kind of thing where I started to feel like a, a... I, you know, I could listen to records with other people and that sort of thing. And then that lasted a couple of years and then punk rock came around. And then that was really where it became like, uh, it was something that could bond people. And it became like your, you know, your fucking crew, you'd go over to your friend's house and everybody, it was through skating that I found punk rock, you know, and I, I had a friend named John Dury and he, his garage was our clubhouse and we would listening, listen to fucking Dr. No or Suicidal Tendencies or the first Social D record, the first TSOL record. And that's where it really became a bonding thing. So I'm, I'm guessing that's like punk in the 80s, whereabouts mm-hmm. you were discovering. Yeah. So from just you're from, talking about 83, 84, 85. So from reading like autobiographies, and, and in particular, No Effects' autobiographies, they mm-hmm. talk about punk in LA as being very gang-related and, yeah. and, and very de- like a dangerous place to be. And yeah. in order for kind of 
individual kids who weren't finding their place but found this group of kind of misfits and then they kind of all stuck together and went to shows and then that's where at shows shit happened yeah is that like an accurate representation of um, yeah that's 100 percent accurate mm-hmm. and um i mean i know dudes to this day in in la and hollywood who are you know my age or older and are still wearing their colors you know still wearing their fucking their back patches of, yeah. you know the, but at this point it's just they just get together to drink, you know what I mean? But that was a hundred percent the deal. And you know, I'm, I've always been a skinny dude with a quick temper. So shows were hazardous for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I had, I had no problem standing up for myself, but I would hit the floor pretty quickly. You weren't picking your fights properly. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. People were picking fights with me and generally yeah. winning them until I like, got a little bigger yeah yeah <laughs> fair enough and cyrus what about what about you so like i'm gonna guess in oh wait wait if i Sorry, may, go, no, go, go for it. i want to address this this thing about the sort of uh fucking macho gang thing as it rega- relates to punk rock especially in hollywood it fucking irritates me because if you grow up in hollywood and you were into punk rock there were a couple of crews there were the lads there were the dog patch winos there were people like that but the violence and all that shit really didn't... It came from West, from the beach punks. Mm. Because they were all like upper middle class, jockey white dudes. And that's where like white power comes in. Like Orange County has got a huge white power fucking uh, scene. And they would come into shows. Because in Hollywood, punk kids and the gay community were in lockstep. You know what I mean? Like if you watch Decline of Western Civilization, it's pretty obvious, you know... uh, Punk in Hollywood was very gay friendly. It was, you know, it, it was born out of the gay community as much as it was uh, fucking pissed off kids from the valley. You know, so when that fucking uber macho scene came in, you know what I mean? Like, I hated fucking Pennywise for years because I thought that they were the fucking the flagship band for that shit. And it wasn't until I became friends with those guys and I realized and really started paying attention to their lyrics that they were against that shit too. It wasn't their fault that those people gravitated towards them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Fletcher is batshit crazy, but he's also hyper intelligent and he does have a big heart and he gets it. It's just important for me to, to, sort of present the, the more fuller picture of what punk rock in the in, in LA was like in, in the early days. So Cyrus, I mean, kind of touching on that then. So did did the kind of the myth of LA punk rock get its way, like make its way over to Florida? And was that for you like the place that punk music was? Or were you more gravitated towards New York punk? Or was it like an Orange County kind of 
punk rock scene going on. Actually, no, Orange County is California, isn't Can it? Can I re- rephrase that? Because I know Cyrus. Yeah, I'm go for it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit now. Did, did the jerks and the adolescents and, and maybe later the Ramones and the dead boys, did any of that shit land with you? If it did, it wasn't in the same way. And maybe okay. because it was so far removed, you know, location-wise and stuff like that. Generationally. Yeah, well, I was about to say, I mean, you, you shift everything here, uh, fast forward a little while. And so, uh, you know, when people are discovering this music, it's maybe discovering more of just the music and less of the whole cause behind it. Because, right. you know, you're listening to stuff We're that might have come affected out. by our surroundings, you know. Hmm. Totally. And, and for the listener, I'm 10 years older than Cyrus. So that definitely plays into this. Yes. And now that you said that, so shift 10 years, yep. you know, and so things are a little bit more removed. I guarantee you that around the same time in the, in the early 80s, there probably was uh, scenes in South Florida like that. I don't know if the like, punk community would have been established as fast because it did seem to grow out of the New York, the L.A. areas like that. I grew up in Hollywood, Florida. The other Hollywood, the <laughs> Hollywood nobody ever knows about, right? And it's it's suburbs, yeah. And so you know, for us, uh, punk and kind of any music you were into is just the music you were into. And so our scenes were just people gathering. We had you know clubhouses or whatever, like you know places that we would all gather. We had shows we would go to, but we would all gravitate over music. And it really wasn't so much of the scene. Maybe a little bit like that. So the. The like surf punk stuff, or yeah. for us, this would be now early '90s. So it's like the the skate and surf stuff, like the the stuff that was on skate videos, or you know, like the Fat Record stuff, things like that. Epitaph bands, those things we could all bond over because yes, we could go to the beach and surf. Yes, kids could skate, right? But as far as the politics and stuff like that, I don't know if we had you know so much of that movement. Or at least it just didn't last as long in South Florida because it wasn't really a hotbed for that stuff because we were kids in the suburbs, hmm. you know, growing up in these kind of normal lives, not being, I guess, affected so much by things that were happening in the Northeast or out West or, or stuff like that. So were bands rolling through Hollywood then? Like were, or was it an occasional once every no, couple you know, of weeks? Or? It, I, South Florida's music scene, I think, was strong. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the early 90s, I feel like uh, South Florida was a spot to play. There were plenty of venues for people to play uh big small anywhere in between and we would get national acts um unfortunately i feel like in the past 10 years people don't play south florida as much and they go to like orlando and then stop it's kind of a central point for the state only a few hours drive from south florida but yeah i mean we would get bands all the time so that was a thing to do you would go to these shows on weekends we literally had we would have ska nights like every friday night at it is called the edge at the time that's where i saw you guys for the first time um i think it was you guys and real big fish uh together so yeah, I mean, it was a thing to do, or we would go to people's houses, somebody, oh yeah, I just got this uh, Epitaph sampler, or I just got this new skate video, you gotta check this out, you had your one friend that was a super cool guy that had the old VW bug that his dad gave him, and he was like the surfer guy, and he would introduce us to a whole bunch of stuff, and so that's where, where my band uh, came out of, and then also, if you're talking about kind of the mid-90s, that's when I think punk music had already started shifting and you started having not only the fat records and, and, and kind of the skate surf punk stuff there, but this, uh, this new emo movement was coming. Mm. And so I know that's probably a whole other podcast and all that stuff, but you got to understand that for me, that's where my kind of introduction to all of this was. I had to hear about it and then go backwards. Yeah. To be honest, the first time I, I heard 
Goldfinger was by seeing the Here in Your Bedroom video on MTV. And then, you know, being like, wait a second, let me get this record. And then you hear this record, and it's awesome. And then you go realize that a band like The Offspring, which had a radio single that didn't sound anything like this, you go get Smash the Record, and the rest of the record sounds like this. You yeah. know? And so I, I kind of did a little bit of backtracking, but only to realize that, wow, this has been going on a lot longer. I wish I would have known about this even earlier, and let me just dive in. So when was your, like, come-to-Jesus moment with punk or ska? Like, was it going to a show, or was it listening to to an album that you discovered? I think, I think it was going to shows yeah. because listening to records were, it was fun. It was great. I honestly was not a surfer. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't like coordinated, so I didn't really skate much. And the music was good. At Dude, you move all four limbs. In- <laughs> while, <laughs> while, while sitting <laughs> down, while sitting down. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, listening to the music, sometimes I almost got confused thinking that certain things like sound, uh, record would sound the same. I remember hearing face to face for the first time and being like, cool, that's 17 of the same song. <laughs> I didn't have like an appreciation for it, but then going to concerts. And so going to these ska nights or uh, even like, I remember going on my first warp tour and just being blown away. It was like 97 or something. Um, and just so many bands. And that's where you could really see the differences mm. and uh, you know, notice how huge the scene was and uh, how fun it can be to kind of be immersed in that. So for yourself, Charlie, I, I've also, again, I've heard in interviews where you spoke about just going down uh, the strip and watching like Red Hot Chili Peppers and you're just thinking, well, they're fucking, they're amazing. And, and, I mean, for you, it, in LA, there must be like, kind of like London, there's several bands on a night. Um, and so therefore, sometimes you can be a bit underappreciated when, when bands do roll in. Were you going to shows constantly or was it just something that you would go to when you could? Because I know, if I understand right, you also used to tech as well. So mm-hmm. like you used, do you used to do that and then go and watch a show at the same time? Oh, fuck, there's a lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, so you mentioned the, the Peppers and I think it's, it's important to dig into that a little bit because what they were and what they are are Night and fucking day. Mm. Mm. Um, around that time in the late eighties or in the early nineties, there the scene was like there was a lot of the hair metal bands, and I'm not going to shit on that because I like a lot of those bands. A lot of those guitar players were really influential on me. You know, Slash is still a fucking monster and 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 important. And Guns and Roses and John Feldman fucking hates when I say this, but we're really tied in with the punk rock scene in L.A. He refuses to believe that, but it's true. <laughs> While that Sunset Strip thing was happening, there was like this sort of thing that was more in East Hollywood and downtown, and more of the the shadier, more dangerous parts of LA. And that, and it was like, you know, in England you had post punk, which was, I guess, the Smiths and maybe Killing Joke and bands like that. Our post punk in LA was Jane's Addiction, mm-hmm. Fishbone. Some of the later weirder Black Flag records, uh, and and like bands like the Chili Peppers, because people shit on that band so much now. And I'm not a fan of what they do currently either. But I have to say, back in the day, they were bad as fuck, and they ate shit. They were broke. They would fucking set up anywhere and play, and they would just get on stage naked, and they would play. If you listen to the first couple of Peppers records, nobody sounded like them. They invented their own fucking thing. You know what I mean? So. And Flea, I have ultimate respect for as a musician and as a human being and his love and appreciation for music and art in general. So when you say the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I do not want people to think of fucking what the fuck ever they are now. Because it's just not the same. So 
were LA kids jaded because we had access to so much shit? I'm sure we were. We didn't think think like that. You know what I mean? Um, if uh, you know, if a band we liked was playing, we were fucking stoked and we were all underage and we were all broke. So we, we knew these buildings cause we grew up breaking into them and skating around them and whatever. So we knew how to break into, uh, the hotel downtown where where club scream was, you know what I mean? And we could break in and we could go see, you know, Jane's addiction. We were, you know, yeah, we were fucking pumped. Mm. You know what I mean? Or Slayer or fucking whoever. Do you know what I mean? I think it's also, a thing that's different about LA than, than most places, especially at that time was you, you could be into alternative bands or whatever. You could listen to fucking Susie and the Banshees and, and, and Bauhaus and that sort of shit and listen to Slayer, you know what I mean? And listen to suicidal tendencies. It was all cool. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? As long as you weren't listening to fucking corporate MTV shit, which is, I know as a member of Goldfinger, it's ironic for me to say that, but, but you know, Alternative music actually meant alternative music back then. Trying to find what my music should be, like your own authority. I have my own teachers, none of them need your help. No matter what you say, no matter what I play, if I want to play metal, that's alright with me. So making that jump from teching for bands, I think you, you did Danzig yeah. for a little while, and then being part of the Goldfinger early starters. Was it is it true that you ended up becoming the guitarist for Goldfinger because their guitarist they had at the time was ODing oh, and Jesus. just couldn't okay. arrive? I was out on tour. Okay, so John and I had started what would become Goldfinger a year before that hmm. it was essentially John, uh, some drummer and myself had gotten together a few times and written a couple songs and kind of, you know, kicked around the idea of what would become Goldfinger. And then for whatever reason, I just, it didn't go anywhere. And then John actually started Goldfinger with another guitar player. And then I was out on the road with Danzig teching for this other band called Godflesh. They were supporting Danzig. And it was just a fucking miserable trip. They were miserable human beings, the whole thing. And I got fired after two weeks. Okay, so watching this band play every night and just being so frustrated because the, the dude couldn't play. I, for the record, Godflesh, actually, the records are pretty cool, and I dig them overall. But as, as human beings and as a live band, they were absolute fucking trash. And I, it was frustrating for me to stand on the side of the stage and watch this guy hack his way through a set every night and I was losing my fucking mind wanting to get on stage. So I knew that John had put this band together and I knew that the guitar player, Steve had had some problems. So as soon as I got home, I called John and I said, look, I know, I know Steve's in the hospital. And I said, I know John's work ethic is insane. I said, I'm sure you've got 20 fucking shows booked anyway. I will fill in for him until he gets better. And that was, that was the plan. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to 
you know, cop his gig or anything. I just wanted to get out and play some fucking shows. And so that's basically how it happened. And then, you know, after the third show, the band turned to me and said, uh, you're our guitar player and give us money for rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, basically, that's basically what happened. So I'm not going to go into how golfing got sung because that's been told so yeah. many times. But like prior to that, though, was there people around sniffing around Goldfinger and, and seeing, trying to sign you before the whole shoe, shoe shop story came about? You know, it, John frames it that way because it's funny. Yeah. But it's, it's actually a little bit cooler than that. There was, a, there was a couple, there was a lot of like really cool sort of punk rock, rockabilly type shops in, in Hollywood at the time. There was Flip, there was Aardvarks, there was all these places. And John worked at a place called Nana's. And it was basically a punk rock clothing store. Do you know what I mean? That happened to sell creepers. So somewhere early on, the narrative was that he was a shoe salesman and people think fucking Al Bundy and that's not really what it was. I mean, John was in there with his fucking bleached white fucking uh, GBH charged hair selling like leopard skin jackets and bondage pants and all that shit. But yeah, um, there was interest because early on, Green Day popped. You know what I mean? And we caught a lot of shit for like, uh, oh, you're just jumping on Green Day's fucking, you know, on their heat. But the thing is, we were influenced by the same bands they were. We were very much into Stiff Little Fingers and The Replacements and The Adolescents and Bad Religion and all the bands that influenced Green Day. So, of course, it's going to sound similar. To me, Green Day sounds more like a Southern California punk rock band than they do a Bay Area band. They sound nothing like Flipper. Uh, does that answer your question? Kind of, yeah. I okay. mean, it's just kind of understanding of like... So what I'm trying to understand is, was there a moment before the whole getting signed where you realized people actually are paying attention? Like, we could, I, could, no, I could actually no, pay the bill as well. No, it was fucking time. weird. Um, in Hollywood at the time, everybody still wanted to be fucking Nirvana. And so we would play at the Whiskey or the Troubadour or these shows where it would be like every band up there was detuned and every band had a fucking dope habit. And we're getting up there in our fucking, you know, uh, Fred Perry's and, and whatever and flying four feet off the stage the whole night playing at warp speed. And it we didn't fit in at all. And it wasn't until the Skeletones and Buck 09 and bands like that took an interest in us and, and started putting us on shows that we found our audience. Yeah. So, no, there was no interest in us because uh, we didn't sound anything like Nirvana. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes. <laughs> So, so here in your bedroom was in, um, Cyrus was talking about it earlier. It was starting to get a lot of radio play, mm -hmm. and um, then you released your self-title, and then it just kind of like blew up. It seems that you were on the road on MTV. I'm going to ask you a question in a second about Conan. You were playing like TV and yeah. stuff like that, and for yourself in particular, because it's it's well known that you were homeless for a period, and and then you, you joined the band. You basically you've had a checkered past with addiction, and then you've 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 cleaned yourself up. You join this band, and all of a sudden you're in an arena where about that stuff is all over the place, and so therefore you have to self be so self disciplined to say no, that is not for me. I'm going to continue on my own path. It helped. Okay, so it helped that John was sober. Yeah, that's how I first met John. When I was first trying to get clean, he was you know he. Uh, he had a little bit more time than me. He, he'd been clean a couple of years. And, you know, uh, so as far as the teching goes, he had another band before that. And I, he's like, dude, you want to make a couple extra bucks? I was literally living on the street. Mm. Come work for my band. 
You know what I mean? And I teched for his guitar player, who ironically later became my guitar tech. But that's, and, and a couple of dudes in John's band, including John, were sober. So, you know, and I had that support around me of other guys that were clean. And, you know, they just were so fucking confident and cool. And then they'd get on stage and crush it without taking a drink or anything. It made it very clear to me that it was possible. Yeah. That my heroes growing up were fucking Stiff Baders and Keith Richards and Ace Freely and all these like professional fuck ups. But it, so, but so it was easy for me to see the other side of the coin that you can be clean and fucking throw down. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That it, your 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 art does not have to be married to your addiction. And from coming from that kind of street background to all of a sudden having this path of maybe we can do this for a, a, for like a living, right? Were you more appreciative of that? No, 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 because I'm still an alcoholic and an addict, and that means that okay. There's a saying in my secret society. If you sober up a fucking horse thief, you've got a sober horse thief. You are who you are. And a lot of times, alcohol and drugs are medication. And if you take somebody's medication away, the symptoms get worse. So I was out of my fucking mind angry and miserable and unhappy. And I was also very young. And I didn't appreciate what Goldfinger... I didn't appreciate what the opportunity I had at the time. Um... I was just mad all the time. Mm. And in fact, the reason I'm in this room right now and the reason I'm playing with Goldfinger again is because it had taken me a long fucking time not to make that realization, but to realize that for the other three guys in Goldfinger and everybody around us, I was a fucking asshole. And I knew that. And I had long since come to that realization, but it, it, it dawned on me and, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly that I had never acknowledged this and apologized to those guys. And John and I hadn't spoken in five years and he randomly as right around the time that I sort of had this fucking realization, he out of nowhere texts me, Hey man, do you want to get coffee? And I was like, okay, that's fucking creepy. So I'm like, yeah, in fact I do. So we got together and we hung out and we you know, had lunch or whatever. And I said, Hey man, by the way, I don't think I've ever fucking acknowledged this, but I was a fucking nightmare pain in the ass. And, and, and I'm really sorry that you had to put up with my fucking attitude. Do you know what I mean? And that was part of the sort of rebuilding of our friendship that led to me coming back out on the road with the band. Can I just add one thing? Yeah, go for um, it. This is amazing for me also because even though obviously being a fan and, and knowing a lot about Goldfinger myself, I don't know a lot of this stuff yeah. because you and I, this is our, the first tour that we're doing together. Yeah. So, you know, we've clicked very, very quickly musically on stage and even off stage. But it's amazing for me to hear some of these stories and some of this backstory. Obviously, Newfound Glory, we have our own past and things mm. like that. Um, you know, uh, maybe not as weathered or, or checkered or whatever you want to call it as, as uh, your experience. But there are things that come out of this that I can also see, you know, with our band. Stuff like, how do you handle um, you know, seeing this fame, did you have any kind of like realization of what was going on at the time? Um, or you were appreciative of it, you know, and it's unfortunate that I think a lot of people, it's very hard to kind of keep yourself focused, keep your eye on the prize. There are a lot of distractions in this industry. Um, and the only ones I think that really do survive besides the lucky ones that are either so talented and just everything clicked on stage and you got your video and it just shot you to, to, to fame. The only ones that really survive and last 
like bands like Goldfinger, Less Than Jake, and I guess even my band is, is getting there, it's because we really now do appreciate what we do. Yeah. And we have people around us that support us. And nobody will allow us to become that absolute fuck up or stay that way for a long time because... Or you get kicked to the fucking curb. You know, we've had to do it. They've had to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I, am, I was going to ask this question later, but I'll ask it now. Um, when, when you did leave the band, Charlie, mm-hmm. or when, when anyone leaves the band, for yourself, Cyrus, who, who's touring a lot with other bands, and you get to know these people, and then that person leaves the band do you reach out to them because in any other walk of life if a if a colleague of mine left i'll just text them saying hey how are you doing you're okay i don't know if that's the same thing in music because it's kind of like well that's just the life is how it is well i think that it's it's that's a very hard question to answer because the reasons why somebody would either leave or be kicked out or fired that's i mean it runs the gamut and some of these reasons you are spending so much time with these people it is your family the 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 band or the music is your baby, you know, like there can be so many things said and feelings hurt that it might be almost impossible to reach out to this person, you know, and that's where I think it gets really really tough. That's really true. Because you also do want to play importance to how close we are while on tour, whether I've known you for 20 years or we just share the stage together, this becomes a brotherhood very fast. And yes, you do outside of the band, you, you want to have these personal relationships and you feel this kind of connection. But again, it could be soured so fast and that's where I think it makes it very hard. And to hear your story about, you know, uh, you and John and, and how you had to kind of come to grips with everything that happened, you know, with your own character yeah. in order to start this healing process. It's, it's inspiring because, you know, this shows you how, how, how powerful this music and how, how it kind of goes beyond just music, how powerful the relationships are. <laughs> spoke about conan earlier so you were playing conan in 96 i think Mm -hmm. and i think it's your first live show and you can clearly uh, national live tv uh, appearance yeah that's probably right and you can clearly see you're all very excited and you're jumping around and then conan comes along and does his link and then darren your your drummer comes out picks him up flips him he crashes on his back and his neck and you're stood to the side just looking and then you just kind of walk away. At that point in time, were you thinking, well, well that's it, we're fucked. Like, he's going to wipe yeah, those uh, off. Yeah, time fucking stood still. Yeah. <laughs> um, Darren was always doing shit like that. Um, we were all out of control um, at the time. We were all physically, like, pretty physical and aggressive because... <sighs> Let me answer you directly before I get sidetracked. Uh, in that moment... As Conan's feet leave the stage, because Darren's lifting him up, and then he starts to fall 
time froze and I watched him hit the ground in slow motion and I thought, that motherfucker just ended my career. <laughs> like, we're just getting started. And I thought, Conan's going to be crippled and we're done. Hmm. And then he hits the ground and then springs up. What <laughs> people don't know, up. what people don't know is Conan is a big motherfucker. He He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and he is solid muscle. Like, what we saw, because he invited us into his dressing room after that shit to kind of let us know, like, guys, calm down. It's all good. In his dressing room, off the stage, he had a gym. He is fucking huge. If him and Darren really would have tangled, he probably would have whooped Darren. (laughs) So, physically, he was capable of taking that fall. We got banned from NBC. Okay. Uh, The actress that was on the show... Before us, she was one of the guests. Uh, during her interview, Conan actually asked her, so, you know, do you have a crush on, like, Johnny Depp or, you know, Brad Pitt or whatever? She's like, no, actually, I, I, I kind of think the guys in Goldfinger are cute. And we were watching this backstage, like, oh, shit. And then, you know, as we were walking to the stage to play, she was, like, kind of standing in her doorway waving at us. And, you know, after we walked off stage, the halls were clear, and she was not <laughs> anywhere to be found. And like that definitely, but Conan himself thought it was fucking awesome. In fact, he put us, he put that clip in his best of year end special for like three or four years, maybe five or six years after it happened. He was a guest on Jay Leno's show and that's what they talked about Mm. that between him and Conan, they probably said the name Goldfinger 25 fucking times. They showed the clip. We got a lot of sort of mileage out of that. But we were never asked back to another NBC show until I actually was out of the band, and then they went and played on Carson Daly's show. So talking about like getting something out of something that you weren't physically involved in, as in like a TV show, Conan, uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater was something that, for me, was how I discovered Goldfinger yeah. at the time. Because obviously Superman was on that track, and then it kind of introduced me to um, like a world Bad of Bad Brains are on Bad, that, Dick I Kennedy's. think. Yeah. Like, it was like, what the fuck is all this music? This is amazing. I love it. Mm-hmm. How did that that game like kind of elevate Goldfinger? Did you see like more people coming to your show? Well, there's two answers to that question. One, it it absolutely blew us up over here on this side of the Atlantic. We had done okay. Our first record had done okay. Hmm. Not great, but Superman came out and it was a complete fucking game changer. We came over here and like shows were selling out. People knew who we were. Um, Tony Hawk was the first video game to break that big globally. Hmm. And we were part of that. And, And we benefited from that hugely. For me, it was weird because, like I, you know, we talked about. I grew up in Hollywood, and punk rock there was one thing. You know, to me, punk rock was, you know, again the Circle Jerks or fucking Forty Five Grave or whatever. And I've never considered Goldfinger a punk band. I consider us a pop band with punk and ska influences. Do you know what I mean? So for us to be included in that company was odd for me as much as it was flattering. Hmm. So yeah, that was, it was kind of a, he- a mind fuck for me. You know what I mean? And for you, Cyrus, cause you, you, you seem to be, you came from like a generation of punk, probably the same as me. Mm-hmm. Whereabouts, um, it was that nineties punk. Yeah. Um, 
Tony Hawk for you? Like, did you play it, and did you is, totally? Did you find music through the, that game itself? As yeah, well? I mean, I'm proud enough to say that I was already a fan of Goldfinger, so I was looking forward to hangups to that second record yeah. and got it probably the day it came out. Uh, you know, Superman obviously being a standout track, but there's some other, there's tons of other amazing tracks on that record. And I actually told these guys that the production of that record, I think you and I, that was one of our first conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told Charlie that the the sound of that record for me was very unique at that time because everything kind of punk related in the early nineties, especially again, these fat records and epitaph band, they all started sounding the same. Hmm. Um, was every- the fat sound, wasn't it? Yeah. The fat yeah. sound was these triggered drums. Everybody was playing the fast punk rock beat and that was kind of it, you know, and then hangups comes out and it doesn't even sound anything like your first record either. Um, just tones were different. Everything was different about that. So it's, it stands its own still to this day, I think for that. And I, I have a lot of appreciation for that, but yeah, I learned of a lot of bands through things like Tony Hawk and, uh, you know, again, just the, there were different areas of media that I think green day was one of the first bands to really bring punk to this commercial kind of scene. Obviously that was an influence on newfound glory. Mm. And then even seeing bands like Goldfinger a few years before us. And, uh, you know, some of these other, the bad religions got a little bit of MTV play, stuff like that. It made it possible for us. We were able to look at these bands and say, okay, we can just be regular dudes, um, that can start a band and hopefully one day get on the TV. And, uh, you know, it didn't seem so far-fetched anymore because I think the one thing about a lot of these punk bands that was cool was it wasn't, especially, I guess, coming out of the 80s where the hair metal movement did start getting very glamorous, right? And uh, it was people that if... If you looked at them, you know, my parents would never want me to be, especially my dad. He was very proper. So you're not going to have long hair. You're not going to dress in leather pants with no shirt on or whatever. And then some of these bands, you know, they really do kind of look a little more normal. I know that everybody had their time where, you know, maybe they, they tried to push the boundaries or just punk in general. Rocks and all that shit. Yeah. But it, what he's talking about is like bands like Bad Religion and and... No, well, no effects always looked like a punk rock band, but, but us to an extent, and we had a lot of tattoos, but other than that, we, yeah, we didn't, we looked fairly like every other, you know, skater or surfer in fucking every neighborhood, Hmm. you know? It was becoming, I think, a little more commonplace and it was being less uh, associated with uh, like criminal acts and more associated with things like a skateboarding or surfing. So I think it was... It was a little more okay for our parents to let us go to punk shows or let us go, you know, listen with our friends to go listen to this, this music or go to the store to buy another record or something like that. Interesting that you said about Hang Up sounding different from this, the self-titled. I mean, for me, the biggest change of sound was Stomping Ground because like, for me, it was, it was a lot more heavier, a lot more faster. I understand this is kind of like the beginning of the end for you, Charlie, where you were like, you don't want to do that again. I'm out. Um, oh, God. <laughs> Um, I, I was always the odd man out in Goldfinger. And like I said, I never really completely, uh, appreciated what we had. So if you, if you have that as a foundation psychologically, and then John at the time was, was taking more and more control of the band from a creative aspect, you know, and from you know, uh, business, financial, everything. He was clearly shifting towards, he wanted to, uh, it was less of a partnership, you know what I mean? And I just had fucking had it, Hmm. you know what I mean? Um, 
so essentially, yeah, I mean, we, we had a conversation before we went to make Open Your Eyes where the band basically accused me of forcing them to make a metal record with Stomping Ground. <laughs> and, uh, and that essentially they were in not so many words letting me know that my contributions would not be welcome on this record. And at the same time, we had signed with a new label, so business was being sorted out, and that was also starting to skew against my interests. And so I was just like, fuck this, peace. You know what I mean? That's essentially what happened. So day one, week later, what are you doing after golfing? Like, are you are you so committed? Like, never going back to that. I, I'm gonna... At the time, sure. Yeah. And I had, you know, like a lot of bands do. You know, like you'll see these bands with um, with uh, that that start to make a little money and they're successful, and they'll start to every band member will travel on their own bus, and on that bus is either their family or their own personal friends, and and they'll start to become sort of isolated from the other band members and so that had happened to me to some degree i never had my own bus but in that um all my friends all my the people i looked up to all my peers were like yeah fuck that fuck that band you don't need that shit whatever do you know what i'm saying and so at the time i felt like yeah i'm never going back Mm -hmm. especially when i heard open your eyes i thought okay that's exactly the record i did not want to make uh so yeah, for a while I was out auditioning for a lot of bands and it, I, I was almost in a number of bands that had I had gotten those gigs, it would have changed everything. Do you know what I mean? Um, but it didn't. So yeah, my, and then I just started, uh, I, I went back to some of my, my old means of making money (laughs) And uh, and that's sort of where it was for a few years. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you were doing though was acting. You started yeah. to start do acting, and there's a you, you acted with Charlie uh, Charlie Slater, uh, Chris Slater. Is it, what's his name? Something Slater. Christian Slater. Christian Slater. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I saw the clip on that on YouTube. And then if you kind of go down a little bit of a well, there's a really funny uh, YouTube section called uh, Skinhead Charlie gets shot a lot. Yeah. And it's just you dying constantly yeah. uh, getting shot. So people, actors listening out there who might want to get some notes, how do you die well? Like, in, like Because I think dying is like, you can either go really over the top or you can just go, Ugh, and then you're dead. Like There must be like some kind of art to it, to, to, to really um, dying well. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Um, uh, I th- well, looking like I do, I'm only going to get cast as a bad guy, period. Um, so I, you know, the bad guys tend to die at the end of the show. I'm not saying that I've seen people get shot to death, but if I had, <laughs> that that might have been something I would have drawn on. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how to go. For Hypothetically, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, yeah. does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah I did. Does. I did. I did do some acting. Yeah. yeah. So how did you find that? Did you think, well, okay, Goldfinger didn't work Okay, out. I can tell oh, you I'm exactly how I found that. This was right. even before Goldfinger. I was at a show. I was out front. Uh, I think it might have, it was either the Troubadour or the Anti-Club in Hollywood, which no longer exists. And these, there was a bunch of you know, people hanging out front. I had a shaved head at the time, like I have for years. And there was people outside with mohawks and Ramones haircuts and whatever. 
And these this really sort of uh, dorky couple of people walked up to us, and they literally had a clipboard. And they said, hey, we're shooting a movie. Uh, do you guys want to be in a movie? And we were like, everybody said, fuck you. And they said, it's $70 a day, and we'll feed you. And we said, yes, we will be in your movie. It, it, it turned out to be this independent movie called uh, Skins. It was about Nazis. And Linda Blair from The Exorcist, my favorite movie of all time, was in it. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm in 100%. And so we showed up a couple days later and uh, I played a skinhead. And, you know, and what was really fucking interesting to me was just watching filmmaking, all of it. Do you know what I mean? The crew trucks and how the crew worked together and how they built the stage and it just all of it was really fucking fascinating. And so I. I shot, you know, my skinhead extra part for a few days. And then when that was done, I said, is there anything else I can do here? And like, I, you know, I helped out in the art department for a few days and then I did fucking craft services and I did everything. And the director noticed that and he noticed that I kept showing up. And so he put me back in the movie and he gave me a couple of lines. And in film, that's called Taft Hartley because to, to, to speak in a film, you have to be in the union, and it's fucking expensive. And he just said, "We're and there's this way that they can just sort of force it. If a director or producer says, we like this actor, we're putting him in our movie anyway, then the union has to sort of open the doors for you. And so that happened. And I, it seemed like I just had a natural knack for it. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so, you know, I never pursued it that way. It's always sort of come to me like, uh, years later, after I quit Goldfinger, a friend of mine who was an actor went uh, to see his agent, and I was just hanging out, you know, drinking coffee in the office while they were talking. And she turned to me and she said, "Do you act?" And I said, "Not really." And she said, "Well, if you ever want to, I'd like to represent you." So it's just always kind of found me. Yeah, you know. And Cyrus, what about yourself? You ever thought about dipping into acting? Because like Newfound Glory's music videos are. are- Big productions, really, yeah. like compared to uh, what music videos really are nowadays. Like, you need to have some element of acting, or is it just kind of like fucking around and just see how it goes? Uh, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, I it will looks dif- like George Clooney. He should be an actor. <laughs> yeah, I, I look, do appreciate man. that. I turned down a lot of roles that were destined for him, and I guess that's where he got them. Yeah. Um, I take direction well. Yeah, I, I believe that. Uh, I don't know if acting is really in my forte. Um, even within my own group, I'm not necessarily the persona of the group, but I will hold it down on the back, uh, as far as the live shows go, you know, Charlie did mention him getting on, on set or being on set for the first time. And like just being enamored with the whole world of making movies, I think it's the same thing with us because music videos, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands, the budgets were crazy Mm. and you were making very small movies and it is insane to see how much work goes into these things and then obviously for a movie you just multiply this by six eight weeks or however long it is and budgets are even up from there but yeah it's crazy um we were very fortunate we started our career where there was a lot of analog uh it was still analog world in both music and also uh film so you would shoot these music videos and they'd have to change reels and all this kind of stuff and it's it's a really cool process so for that kind of uh or in that notion i have a lot of appreciation for the the film world i don't think i would go into that world i actually am very interested in the radio world okay and i kind of would like to get into that more um, Can you talk to phil about it 
I I have spoken to Phil about that. Yeah. So Phil, who plays uh, guitar and Goldfinger, he he does a radio show, a morning radio show in St. Louis where he is, and he's been doing that for years. And he has a really cool story about how he actually got that radio show. But even myself, things like doing liners, like I love doing that for for radio. And um, again, I think I take direction well. So it's fun. It's fun to branch out when you get into the arts in any in any form. I'm just going to quickly check your tour manager and, and you both. Food? Are we are we getting food? Okay. Is that might be? Oh, okay, cool. Okay, good to know. It was too, too good to use the entire day. There is a pool table and a skylight in here. As you would say, posh. Yes. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's clean. Ten minutes left. Let's kind of jump this forward then. So... For you, Cyrus, you've come in to drum for Goldfinger. How, do you? This might be the most fucking dumbest question, but for yourself, because there's been a couple of drummers before yeah. who have kind of imprinted their sound and their drumming techniques, yeah. do you have to then change your own drumming techniques to kind of overlap what they're doing? Or does the rest of the band kind of work around your own beat? So I think, I think that can be answered in a multitude of different ways. The, the way I personally approach this, and I've done this with other groups that I've, I've played with, is I want it to be as much of the people in front of me on stage don't even realize that it's somebody different, unless they want to realize it's somebody yeah. different, and then that's great too. But in order to, to achieve that, it's a mixture of, Look, I have to be confident in who I am. There was a reason why I got a phone call to do this. There's a reason why I'm now able to do this over and over. But on top of that, I have to pay homage to like where this came from. And so being, it's great to also at that time be a fan of the band and to know their material. What I try to do is I try to listen to the records. Um, in this case, a band like Goldfinger where some of the songs, there are some extra parts live or whatever. I did extensive research. I hate to make it so clinical sounding, but I watched shitloads of YouTube videos because I can't watch them all the time on stage. And so, you know, you learn these little parts because you want to make it feel like nobody has to worry about it. So in essence, I do... So like when you're talking about the older records, I do kind of become Darren. But I only become Darren in the sense that I try to understand why he might have played certain fills so that when I'm in that situation, if we're doing something uh, that's a little different, I can do what he did and it would feel comfortable. But yes, there is so much confidence in I know that I can slam those drums back there. I can hit them harder than most people. And if we're going to do, let's say, a halftime part, it's going to be it's going to be huge because I do that all the time. But even when I'm playing ska music, which Newfound Glory doesn't really do, I bring this power to it that I think other drummers might not. And so that's, you know, I've had people tell me in groups that I've played in where there has been another drummer play after me, I've actually had situations where I've had people in the group call me and ask, what did you do? Because this next person isn't doing it. And I don't know how to answer that question because honestly, all I did was just you know, think about what to play or like I say, kind of immerse myself in that musical situation or that, that musical character so that I fit in, in my opinion, in a better way. Uh, so talking about Darren, uh, Charlie, did you speak to Darren before you came back? Cause obviously you and Darren both left Goldfinger. Yeah. And, um, actually question there, did you think that was it? Once both of you left, did you think that Goldfinger was done? And then now you coming back, did you, did you reach out to him and say, dude, I'm going to go back? I did. Yeah. Well, I didn't say, I didn't say, 
I'm going to go back. I said that John, what had happened was John had asked me to come up as a special guest at a show. I wasn't going to play the whole show. I was going to come out and play like four or five songs and finish the set. And my, my thinking at the time was John and I had talked and it was good. And, you know, uh, and you know, like I built this house just like everybody else. Do you know what I mean? And, and I deserve to get up and fucking play if I want. And part of, part of my thinking was it felt good. My conversation with John felt good. Uh, the invitation didn't feel like it had a fucking agenda. You know what I mean? It felt like it was coming from an honest place. So for me, that was important. And as far as Darren was concerned, I think Darren, uh, liked being in Goldfinger more than anybody that's ever been in this band. I mean, he really, he, he loved the music more than anybody. He had the best time being in this band. And I always left the band. I was never fired. Darren, that choice was removed from him. So my, one of my, one of my hopes was that I could sort of negotiate uh, a situation where Darren could come back. Um, I knew that it probably wouldn't happen without my intervention. And uh, this gets a lot more involved, but I will just say it hasn't happened. (laughs) Um, I'd like to address something Cyrus was saying. Cyrus has absolutely done his fucking homework. He shows respects. He shows respect to his predecessors uh, that have played these songs before. And uh, Darren, for example, is a fucking amazing drummer. And I'm sure because of age, Darren was an influence on the way Cyrus plays. So he maybe maybe didn't have to do that much homework on it because I'm sure the way Darren played these songs is imprinted on his fucking DNA somewhere. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, he, he fucking smokes. He shows up and you can tell that he's got the, the, the proper reverence for these, this music. Um, but he definitely puts his own fucking, stamp on it so moving forward like is there going to be another album that you're going to both going to be involved in or is that something that you just haven't been spoken who about? fucking knows yeah. <laughs> you're you're asking us to fucking read john feldman's mind and that's like watching inception backwards <laughs> fair enough let's leave it that but thank you for your time guys and, excellent uh yeah thank you for being candid and enjoy the show Welcome back 
thank you to Charlie and Cyrus for taking the time to talk to me and for being quite honest and candid in the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. I really did. If you're interested in checking out some of Charlie's acting, I'll post some of uh, Charlie's death scenes up on the social media on the Punks and Pubs social media site. You can find us at Punks and Pubs on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Right. Please go rate and review. It really does help people find the podcast. And also go tell three friends about the podcast. That's your homework for this week. Thank you to the Filthy Hearts for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Make sure you go check out their new album, Beyond Repair. If you are in a band or have a record label, you might sell beer, have a blog or a zine. As long as it has something to do with the punk community, I want to give you some free advertisement. So come and sponsor Punks in Pubs and hopefully it'll open up a new audience for people who might be finding it hard to attract a wider community of punks. Anyway, for more information on how you can sponsor the podcast, email punksinpubs at gmail.com. Right, that's it for this week. If you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. Until next time, bye-bye. Today!